Well, good morning. <clears throat> it's good to be with you all in this capacity. Brooke and I are really excited to be in Albuquerque full time. It's been kind of amazing how we both have talked about we've never so quickly felt at home, um, even as we move into a place that is temporary. And even though our stuff was a little bit behind from the moment that we both were here, it's just been kind of this really cool thing for us. And a lot of that is because of many of your care for us. And so we're excited about being here. Being from Oklahoma allows you to naturally ask the question about tornadoes. So some of you are from the Midwest and you might have enjoyed those questions again and again, but mostly people just ask like, so, so what is it like? Like, tell me, or have you ever been a part of one? Were you in one? Are you a ghost now? And certainly one of the reasons why I wanted to move out here was it's tornado season there. So just get me out. Growing up, it was always the same rhythm whenever a tornado warning was coming close when I lived with my parents. And you would get kind of that warning shot from uh, the weather newscasters, and you really knew you only had about five or ten minutes to take shelter. Now, in Oklahoma, the ground is, is so clay-based that a lot of people don't have basements. Most people don't have a tornado shelter that's in the ground, so you have a safe room or something like that. Well, we've seen too many pictures of houses just blown completely over. Um, my dad is a banker, and so naturally he has the codes to all the safes. So growing up, whenever there was a tornado warning, we would just go to his office and hide in the safe because what a better way to pass than rich. <laughs> and so whenever that kind of case would happen, we would flee there. It's always interesting to watch how people react to tornadoes. I'm the kind of guy who I need one warning and I'm in the car ready to go to safety or go to a bunker or go in a safe room. Other people, they want to go outside and take pictures or call their friends or maybe even go storm chase. Um, a lot of people, especially my mom, will start gathering all the things that are really meaningful to them. By that, I mean pictures that are on the wall. So you'll see my mom screen put it into paper bags like this one, that one, and I'm not going to hold it against her that one time the family dog made it and a picture of me did not, but <laughs> portraits often show us way more than just a picture that captures. It, within that is a memory or a personality that takes effect. Uh, you know, in the books Harry Potter where uh, portraits actually come to life and they're talking and interacting with people. In a lot of ways, just a, a simple picture can do that in our memories. I think this morning what we'll see is a couple of portraits in Scripture that will show us and expand, I think, for us, a, a broader picture of some of the people um, who are in this text. There's, there's a portrait, I think, of, of who Jesus is. There's a portrait of what Mary is going to be like, how she's going to act and interact. There's another portrait of a disciple. And so those three are going to be most obvious. And, and I think there's one more portrait, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I want your imagination to think and guess and is it that person that person I'm going to tell you at the end or maybe halfway through you'll have to stay awake the whole time so we're going to see portraits of different things in our text our sermon this morning is going to be from the book of John so if you have a copy of God's word I want to encourage you to turn to the book of John the fourth book in the New Testament chapter 19 so the big number 19 and then verses 25 through 27 Given that today is Mother's Day, I really just naturally thought of this text. One, it's easy on me. You have Jesus and a mom. It's hard to not ruin it, right? Just talk about one or the other and it satisfies someone in here. 
But here I think it, it kind of answers this longing question that you and I might naturally have as our lives unfold. What does it mean for God to really love us? What does it mean day in and day out for not just the greeting card style of I love you, I love you, bro, how's it going? You're my favorite person. You're my third best friend this week. But what does it mean for God to love you? I think we're gonna see a really wonderful case of where that is perfectly being shown. And it's where the son of God is loving his earthly mother. God says to us in John 19, verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of God for us this morning. If you're a reader of the book of John at all, you'll see these natural things unfold where John really loves to compare and contrast what's obviously in front of him. And another thing that he loves to do is he just loves to kind of sit in the tension. You know, there are some people who just love to avoid tension no matter what. They don't want to bring up the awkwardness at any occasion. But here you have John, who's kind of the opposite, who will try to grab onto the tension and he writes to us about it. And here there's this tension of Jesus, the son of Mary, the friend of many, this amazing person that by this time a lot of people are starting to gather around. There's this tension of this mighty man who's dying on a cross as a criminal. If you're familiar with the scriptures at all, you'll know that there's this longing that's happened from the beginning, that in the beginning God made everything perfect and good. And he created man and he called man very good and he gave man a partner, Eve. And it wasn't long after that that when you infuse man into any situation, sin just seems to take over. The natural fleshly desires of man and woman have kind of tilted on its access eternity forever. And so you see the scriptures unfold where God is trying to satisfy his holiness with man's sinfulness and you see man trying to earn God's favor, man trying to do what is right. But as man installs other men, other men to these positions, we think of like prophets or priests or kings. Men are just sinful and we just can't satisfy a holy God. And, and in, the scripture says that in the fullness of time, God was going to send the son of God, God himself to the earth who will take on humanity in physical form and will ultimately be what everyone else couldn't be. He was going to be perfect and blameless. He was going to be righteous in everything they did. Nothing, if you just imagine, nothing that he does is anything but good. A lot of us probably just did the opposite on our way to church in the midst of traffic. Like anytime we're infused of something, it's like, get out of my way. And here, this perfect, majestic, God, man, is hanging on a cross, having devoted followers, having people who sold everything to be a part of them, having people who gave their all to just wanting to be within footsteps away from him, leaving their occupations, leaving their families, leaving the comfort, and their, their Messiah is dying. Some kind of king, 
some kind of priest, some kind of great prophet. And there people gather at the cross. So in your outline, there are going to be four different things. The first one is that people here are gathering at the foot of the cross. Now, our scripture tells us that there are a couple of people who are standing there. And some people think three and some people think four. I read one guy, he thought two. And, and I'm going I'm to try to argue that there are actually four women in our text, clearly, that are gathered at the foot of the cross. And it'll, it'll make sense later on, I hope. But I'm going to tell you why I think you want to, like me, think that there are four people. First one is, most people think that there are four people. And I want you to fit in. Second, I think it's convincing that there are four people because, like I said before, John compares and contrasts many times and there were four people who were in charge of crucifying this Messiah, the Jews, this King of Kings. There were four people tasked with that. And now, opposite of that, you have four women just clearly in the text. It says his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Third, I think most convincingly in this circumstance, this is just what the Bible says plainly to us. You know, so I just read from the ESV. If you are more holy than thou when you read from the New American Standard, it also says his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, and Mary Magdalene. If you read from the NIV, same thing. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So three reasons right there, but I think mostest convincingly to us I think that you can see that there are four people there because the scripture just plainly says that in its original language. In the Greek, we'll read that there are four women and we can see that by there are four nominal phrases. Where nominal phrases, where we have a noun and then things that support that phrase, another noun, so Mary, Mary's sister. Also, you have things like, it probably wouldn't be in the custom of the same family having two sisters named Mary. That'd be very confusing. Oftentimes you might mistake one of your kids for the family dog's name, but you certainly wouldn't name the family dog after one of your kids. That would be confusing for a lot of people. So four kind of reasons that I think that there are four women in this text. And you might go, that doesn't change my life. Who cares? I bring that up because one, I think Satan most naturally wants to attack you and me by putting this question in our minds. Does the Bible really say what we say it says. Also, John looks a little bit different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. The same account where Jesus is dying on the cross, some people are far away or there might be lacking one of these Marys or it might be at a different time. So if the gospels don't agree, then why should we agree with any one of the gospels? And and just a reminder there that these don't actually contradict itself. We can read plainly one gospel and one gospel and another gospel and just see that these are four writers talking about the same thing with a different perspective. But once again, I want to tell you that because how we just plainly read the inspired word of God will dictate how we live our lives. And that will show itself, I believe, a little bit further on. So you have Jesus dying on the cross, the climax of human history. For those of us who read the Bible and understand, we we long for this part. You know, maybe we started at the beginning of the year reading Genesis and Exodus and we're like, let's go to Galatians and there it is. And now we look back at John and you go, that's where the climax of all human history is. Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. 
Now you might be here today and you're just questioning faith in general. You might be here today and you're skeptical of what this says about who Jesus is. You might be here today just because you don't want to make your mom mad. And this is a reason to play that out. What we're saying here by Jesus living and dying on the cross is when I say that it's the climax of human history, what I mean is to go all the way back. Nothing that I can do for myself will satisfy a God who is perfectly holy. My sins, my iniquities, my natural fleshly desires separate me from God. But God, in such a loving way, actually sent his son who would be a sacrifice for me on the cross. So when Jesus is dying here on this cross, we look at this and we rejoice, we sing, we pray, we fellowship because of this. And because of this, we know that we have a right standing before God because Jesus pays what we couldn't pay for ourselves. He paid with his whole life. And he's both fully God and fully man. So that satisfies the humanity that I have and the divinity which God has. And so Jesus here is on the cross and the people gather around, whether some wanting to crucify him like the four men or now some who are wondering, is this really how it ends? So people are gathering around the cross. The emotions of all these women have to be pretty strained at this point. And then we see there in verse 26 where Jesus sees his mother and the disciple. Your outline will say that Jesus blank his mother. And what I meant to do, but I forgot to do, is include mother and the disciple. I don't know, I just got really fired up for Mother's Day, so I want to make this all about the moms. But there we see in verse 26 that Jesus sees his mother and the disciple. Or most clearly in the text, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple. This is really the climax of this small part of Jesus' life where the king of the world, the Lord of lords, the longing Messiah from the very beginning, who ages and ages have longed for this, they're now looking at someone dying. But not only that, to make it tug in a little bit deeper, the mom of this person is watching him die. All week I've been thinking about what it must be to be a mom, which is an uncomfortable thing to think about as a guy and not a mom. And so I tried to put myself in my mom's mind when different things would happen in my life. So what was my mom thinking when she was teaching me to ride a bike and you know, passing along with me, holding the back of it because I didn't want to use training wheels for the rest of my life. And she's like, I've got you, I've got you. And then you turn around and look and she's like 30 yards away and you stumble into the ditch. What was she thinking? Was she laughing at that point? Was she, did she want to make mom problems for the rest of my life? My mom was a PE teacher, still is a PE teacher. And so when you go to PE um, in the school that I went to, two classes go at once. So you have two classes. And at the end, my mom would always have students do a pull-up contest. So anytime that it was like my turn to do a pull-up contest, I wonder what my mom was thinking when she always pitted me up against a nine-year-old girl. Like, didn't she know that girls develop quicker than guys and I don't really have upper body strength to start out with? Like why, why did she pit me against Kendra when Kendra could do 12 and I, she knew I could only do three? We practiced time and time again. What was mom thinking at that point? I could go on and on of stories in that and then some of them get a little bit more somber. Like what was my mom thinking when I called her at 1 a.m. from a payphone? When I was living in DC and I said, I've lost my wallet, I've lost my phone, and I've lost my keys, and you're the only number I know. 
she can't help. What is she thinking? Or what was she thinking when I would tell her that I didn't get the job? Or that the relationship was over? Or when I texted her when we were rushing Brooke to the heart hospital ER and said, hey, we're going to the heart hospital ER. Don't call or text. I'll call you later. Rule number one, don't text your mom when you're on your way to the ER and say, don't call or text. That probably made it worse for her and later made it worse for me. But what was she thinking at that point? Some of you have the same kind of recollection, especially on this day, when you think about some of you are moms. Or you might give anything to be a mom. You, You want someone to be married with so that you can exercise what you really want to do, be a mother. You would give anything maybe to have a good relationship with your mom. Why won't she text me back on Mother's Day? Why don't my kids call me on Mother's Day? Or even deeper, you wish that you could have your child again. Some of you, we we would know in a room this size, have lost children, whether in the womb or you were unable to have a child in the womb, or you lost it just soon after, and you would give anything for that feeling. Again, you give anything for a text or for a phone call or to roll your kid down on a bike and teach him to learn how to ride. You would give anything to stay up late at night because they're just so loud and you wouldn't go to sleep. The the emotions here, when we look at what our kids do, are heightened in this sense. When we see a mom who is watching her child die on a cross for crimes he didn't commit, for the criminal that he wasn't. And you're trying to fit in the tension of, I I know that he's the Messiah, but I also wonder why he's dying. And especially in this way, the thoughts must go second by second, millisecond by millisecond. It's amazing how when tragedy strikes, we can think so many thousand thoughts at once. And the other day before we moved out here, it's the day before we're going to close on our house, which means it's the last day that I have to do all the projects that I said I was going to do before I was going to close. So there I am standing on a ladder, about three-fourths on the roof. I just need to shift that last 25% of my body weight and something gives way at the bottom of the ladder and I fall probably eight feet, but within that last eight feet, all these mental images in my mind wondering what's going to happen. Do I actually have insurance? Am I going to need to replace the gutters? What if I ruin my teeth? I have to preach on Mother's Day in a couple weeks. How much money do I have on my Lowe's card? Do I need back surgery? And then you land. All those things within a millisecond, don't you know that in the same way, but in a more tragic way, hour by hour by hour of the son's crucifixion was unfolding. And for Mary, it started last night. The thoughts of motherhood, the thoughts of her perfect son, the thoughts of the redeemer who was supposed to come and save are now on a cross. But interestingly enough, if you're a director of a movie, where you point the camera really matters and ultimately tells the story. And here in our text, the camera isn't pointing at Mary, though her emotions are real and what's going on in her mind has got to be tragic and And I would never want to experience it, but the camera is actually on Jesus at this point. And our text says that Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. 
Jesus saw his mother and the disciples standing nearby. The idea of Jesus seeing things isn't outside of the box. You know, people see things. It's a normal thing. In fact, in the New Testament, it's over 40 times that it says that Jesus saw or he was looking or something appeared in his mind. There are physical ways like John 9, he saw a blind man from birth. Well, that's normal. All of us can see that. But also he could spiritually see things too. And like in Luke 5, And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Surely, as we imagine what Mary is going through, but then we see at what this says about Jesus, where Jesus saw Mary, his mom, and the disciple, his beloved. Wouldn't you imagine that this is agonizing for him as well? All of us want our moms to see us do awesome stuff. You know, you bring a test home and you go, well, it wasn't a fail. Look at it. Put it on the fridge. Or you ride a bike now with just two wheels and you're like, mom, look. But when things go bad, oh, I do not want mom to see that. Played baseball in high school. I was really good at striking out. (laughs) And don't you know that my first thoughts were, oh man, is mom and dad, are mom and dad at this game? And yeah, they were. And yeah, they saw. And yeah, it was even more embarrassing that they were there. Jesus here has to be looking at them and the emotion of a normal human has to be taking him over. Charles Spurgeon says, here was another wrench for our Lord. He could not be spared anywhere. He must recollect in his death everything that would cause him grief. Far too often we forget that the Son of God, majestic, holy, divine, perfect, amazing, is also a man with emotions and feelings. This is the same man that wept. This is the same man that had agony over people who couldn't do simple things like walk or rise. And he's dying. And his mom is there. And his disciple is there. And he sees what must be, even though it doesn't make it better, must be this last prophecy that's going to be fulfilled. I want you to turn to Luke 2. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just one one book back. Go to Luke 2, Luke chapter 2. And we would imagine that Mary is now feeling something that Jesus is seeing, knowing all that was going to happen. Here we see, I think, what is a fascinating prophecy and what I think makes this passage even more gut-wrenching. Chapter 2, verse 25 in the book of Luke It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also 
so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. On the cross, the Messiah is seeing his mother's soul being pierced. In, in just a couple of verses later, we're actually, we would see, you'll see that actually physically Jesus' body is going to be pierced. Just to make sure that a guy who's dying on a cross is actually dead. They're going to stab him, one, to fulfill another prophecy there. But also he's looking at his mom. And I would imagine he knows that what has happened was what was going to be foretold to happen. His mom's soul is being pierced. I don't know what it's like to lose someone very, very close to me, like a best friend or a parent or a child, but I would imagine that watching it is awful. And Jesus sees that. Sees them seeing him be crucified. And even as awful as this was, it's natural for us to reflect on how great it was at this moment at this moment in his crucifixion, he's removing the guilt that you and I have for our sins. He's removing the wrath that we deserve for our sins. He's, he's actually living fully, perfectly, physically as a substitute. He's fulfilling redemption, defeating evil. But he's also seeing his mom watch him die. And amid the humanity of Jesus, we see that nothing can ultimately stop him from love. Even in this case, if it were me and someone were killing me, I would not think about other things. I would think about how do I get off this cross? Where is my hidden knife or weapon around me? How do I get after these people who are trying to kill me? And we see here that Jesus doesn't just see his mother and the disciples standing by, but third, we see that Jesus delivers Mary to the disciples. So we see this action of love in the midst of agony. We see this action of God seeing everything that is happening in front of him, not blind to the idea that people are watching him. And we see that Jesus delivers Mary to the disciple. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son responding to what he sees. And on the cross, he calls out to his mother, woman, behold a son. But, it, but he's not bringing attention to himself. He's not saying, woman, behold your son, Jesus. The, the words here are, Jesus, are, woman, behold your son. And then he immediately parallels that with, behold your mother. He, he's giving his mom over to his disciple. Jesus is the oldest male in his family and his dad at this point Joseph is probably past or at least old enough to where he he probably can't care for Mary physically or financially so Jesus is the oldest male in the family and a lot of you probably feel this way when dad either passes or isn't able to care for mom it's our job it's our duty. It's our desire. That's, that's my mom. Of course I'm going to care for her. And here he's about to die. And instead of agonizing about woe is me, he says, woman, behold your son. And he gives his mom to his disciple. He is rightfully and amazingly and carefully continuing to live out the law that, that he gave to Moses. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, it wasn't just like cool things to kind of live by. Like, yeah, don't make a graven image. Okay, I'll take the weird thing out of my yard. But the Fifth Commandment, honor your mother and father. 
the most honorable thing that he could do at this moment was to make sure that for the rest of his mom's life, she would be cared for. And she would be delivered over to this person. Out of God's love for the Father, nothing is stopping his love for his disciples. And Mary was certainly one of Jesus' disciples. We know that because other people in Jesus' family were not disciples. You know, it says in John that even his brothers didn't believe him. He went back to his home synagogue. You know, the place where you're supposed to be the cool guy. And his friends rejected him. The people who knew him rejected him. But even his brothers rejected him. Didn't they see how perfect he was? How much like this Old Testament Messiah he was? And they they rejected that. So Jesus delivers his mother over to the closest people to him, which are his disciples. For a long pattern now in the book of John, we see that those who are closest to Jesus weren't, weren't family, but actually those who would give up their lives to follow him. Those are the ones who were near him. Those who were the ones who he thought most fondly of. Those were his disciples because they immediately followed him. His family at this point was probably back in Galilee. And so he looks and he sees his mom and he looks and he sees his disciple who he loves. And he says, woman, behold your son. So Jesus delivers his mother. And then fourth, Jesus entrusts the disciple with Mary. So Jesus here isn't just giving his mom to his disciple, but now on the receiving end, he's entrusting this disciple with his mom. Just kind of a segue here, or a rabbit trail, if you will. Anytime that Mary kind of is mentioned in the New Testament, my my alarm bells go off because there's a whole lot of people in the world who see Mary very differently than I do. Um, Most people in Christianity Um, would view this circumstance as Mary being delivered to the disciple so that the disciple would be cared for or would care for Mary as his own mother would. But a lot of, of, you know, the history of Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church especially actually sees this circumstance where Mary is handed over to the disciple. They see it as the reverse. They see it actually as the disciple is now being placed under the authority of Mary. So when they say, woman, behold your son, behold your mother, this is the part where Mary actually gets the church. And so they they read and write and and give um, situational circumstances where they teach now that this is the part where Mary actually gets what she's been longing for. And in one commentary I read, a Catholic commentary, it says that we suggest that in this situation, The connection with Cana, remember when Mary wanted more stuff at that wedding? In Cana, that if Mary was refused a role during the ministry of Jesus as it began in that time, she finally receives her role in the hour of Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. This links Mary at Cana, at this point on the cross, who now stands on behalf of those begging for Jesus' gift. This This is in part why people pray to Mary today. Because this is the part where Jesus, at this climax of human history, they think that he hands the keys of the kingdom over to Mary. Even though he kind of, I guess, to them, hands the keys of the kingdom over to Peter as well. But so they pray to her this way. They worship and part her this way. They still see the son as the son of God. But again, we look at this and go, okay, if a lot of 
not horrible people like us read the Bible this way and us, not horrible people too, read the Bible a totally different way. You know, are both of us wrong? Should any of us trust this word? If, if a lot of people for thousands of years get this wrong, who are we? Again, we go back to what I did at the beginning. What does the Bible just plainly say? What's there in the text? When Jesus saw his mother in verse 26 and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. This plain reading historically, even today, is what do it look like for an adoption transaction to take place? Some of you have adopted kids and you go before a high court and that court deems that child yours under the authority there. Now, if this isn't a high court, it certainly isn't a legal action, but, but the way that things are said is really parallel to, have, to how things happen in those days and even today. Woman, behold your son. The disciple, behold your mother. Just reading the Bible plainly helps us see what God has inspired for us to learn from him. Also, it does not say that, that, the disciple, that the disciple is placed under the care of Mary. Look at the next verse over, verse 27. Immediately, the disciple takes Mary and takes her to her home? No, his home. Under the care of him. It can't contradict one or the other. And, and a, another reason it puts her, puts Mary, I think if you read it where Mary actually gets the church, it kind of puts her in this weird spot where Jesus is about to die. So if he were to entrust her with the church, okay, I understand that from a logical standpoint, but what happens three days later when he comes back? Does he, does he get his keys and garage door opener? Like, is it mine again? Is it yours? Swip swap, I don't, I don't really know what to do with all of this. The plain reading of scripture will help us. Lastly, I think in this case, this rabbit trail, it's really easy for us to want to put theology above the plain reading of scripture. Um, oftentimes we might be known for how we do theology more than just how we speak of the Bible out loud to people. Like if I were to tell you what is the natural state of man and, and you give me the Westminster Confession instead of something in Romans... Both may be right, but one is inspired and living and sharper than any sword. And so we want to be people who read the book carefully because it might get us in trouble. And the point is, is that people like a Roman Catholic, they're not bad. They're not awful. They're not the enemy. You know, don't drive by one of their parishes and, you know, kind of look at them and go, ugh. But actually it might deter us from really worshiping what's happening here. The God of the universe is caring for his people. That enough allows us to worship. So what is happening here is just additional care that Jesus shows. So, so back to the outline, Jesus entrusts his disciple with his mom. Most obvious, Jesus entrusts his mom to one of the disciples. He doesn't just entrust her to anyone. Like I said before, there were many people that Jesus could have had the option to giving his mom over to, but she's entrusted to one of his disciples. And I would imagine that that guy showed up at the cross that day, not thinking that he would receive Jesus's most precious family member, his mom. You know, oftentimes we think that the Christian walk is us just denying ourselves and following Jesus. And it's really hard for us to just see that God himself actually gives us way more than we could ever ask for. 
You know, in this case, the disciple is receiving the most precious thing to Jesus at this point, his mom. And you and I, in the same way, when we receive Christ, when we call on Christ to be our Savior, we receive eternal life. We we have a hope that is everlasting. We, We have no reason to have any fear or to lack any hope. You know, one of the favorite parts of the Bible at the very end in the Revelation, when the new heavens and new earth comes, one of the coolest things about it, not the gold, not the clear ground, but the fact that there's no crime. No one's in pain. No one dies. No one suffers. And that's what we, that's where we get to be. And all we have to do is deny ourselves. I mean, if we keep to ourselves, we don't get that. If we deny ourselves, we get all of that. Heirs and heiresses of the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus delivers the richness of his family to a beloved disciple. He entrusts this disciple with someone he loves so greatly. It says a lot about Mary that he would do this. It says a lot about the disciple that he would do this. It certainly ought to remind us of Proverbs 18, a friend that sticks closer than a brother is a blessed man. And and here, this disciple, not a brother, sticks to Jesus closer than anyone else. And what does he receive? The opportunity to, for the rest of his life, serve God's human or God's earthly mother. Moving out here has been really easy for me and Brooke. Everything kind of fell into place. The, the offer came quickly. Our time here in Albuquerque was awesome. We are so excited to move back. Our house sold very quickly. Um, our friends were incredibly supportive. Our parents were very supportive. And the whole time I kept laying awake at night, waiting for the bottom to drop out. Surely it can't get this good. Like I'm waiting for the flood to literally come and wipe away my house and go, well, it's hard to sell that now. It's not there. I don't know if I have insurance. Oftentimes as Christians, we, we rightly acknowledge that we're sinful people in light of a holy God and in God's goodness and righteousness and love saves us from our sins by giving us his son's death on a cross and raising the son from the grave by the power of the spirit. And it's hard for us to even imagine that he would give us more. You know, I had a friend that I was telling all these things to like, yeah, I mean, it's just going really great. I can't believe it. And I'm just waiting for something bad to happen. And he just said, yeah, reformed guys have a really hard time with God loving them specifically. That's true. I mean, imagine what this guy must be like. You're watching your friend, your savior die, and then he gives you something that would be hard to receive. And then he just receives it immediately. And look, look at what he does. And from that hour, verse 27, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Another, another moment by Charles Spurgeon. He says, there was no specific direction given to John to entertain Mary. It was quite enough for the Lord to call his attention to her by saying, behold, thy mother. How I wish we were always in such a state of heart that we did not need specific instructions. A hint would suffice. Dear friends, Spurgeon says, do not require pressing or driving to holy duty, but rather have within you such a spring of love that it shall be a delight to do anything that may bring joy to the heart of God. I mean, the, the disciple doesn't receive Mary and go, yeah, but tell me about her life insurance policy. Like, did she get anything from Joseph? 
Does she have crutches that she has to use? My, my house isn't ADA compliant. Do I have to drive her places or go, you know, go hang out with her all the time? I don't have a mother-in-law facility in my house. He hears the Lord, behold your mother, and he immediately cares and obeys for her. What a, what a testimony of this awesome portrait of the disciple who, this shouldn't be uncharacteristic of him. In fact, he's given his whole life to follow this Lord and the Savior. And even at that time, he gives another command and he immediately just does it. What an amazing thing to see. John so readily obeys the command of Christ that it was called by one person a token of beautiful reverence. So the people here in our scripture gathered to see the Lord on the cross and Jesus sees them there and Jesus delivers his mother to the disciple and Jesus entrusts his disciple with his mother. In this we see the son of God's devotion not only to the father but we also see the son of God's devotion to his disciples. If you ever have a question of what it feels like or looks like or is like to be loved by God, what it looks like is to be cared for by God to be thought of by God, to be seen and known and provided for and entrusted. And we see that we, we get to experience that eternally where the Lord of the universe doesn't see eternity without us a part of it. He, he knew us from before the foundation of the world and he only knows us as his own because Jesus was there on the cross. Earlier, I talked about a couple of portraits that, uh, you know, we might carry into our bunker as a tornado comes. And I told you that there are going to be a couple of portraits in this scripture. You know, the portrait of Jesus in this case. It sees him as high and mighty and holy being crucified, but also it sees him as caring. The portrait of Mary, devoted, drawing near, but also obedient to now be entrusted to another person. The portrait of the disciple. I don't know why the emotions that he's there except he wanted to be there. And the portrait of him is just a dutiful, obedient disciple to the Lord. And the last portrait I, I kind of teased you with earlier, the one that I wouldn't tell you about. The last portrait that I think you can just look at this text and imagine is the portrait of yourself. What does the portrait of you in this text show? Someone who is drawing near to the Lord, even at the hour of his crucifixion, even at the hour where terror seems to exist? Is it a portrait of someone who's there or is it a portrait of someone who is fleeing and only worried about ourselves? Here, I would just call you to deny yourself like all of these people did and draw near to the Lord. The, the offering of salvation for you is not as far off as you think you deserve. And you'd be right in thinking that you deserve for salvation to be far from you. But, but the same God who looks and sees his mother in his reaction as one of care also looks to you and says, come to me. Nothing else in the world matters. Nothing else in the world can stand up. So the portraits in this case show many things. And oh man, I just really hope that the portrait of you as someone who is drawing near to the Lord. I mean, just do it. This morning, we asked the question, what does it mean to be loved by God? It means everything. 
It's the only thing that matters to be loved by God. And so call upon the Lord as your savior. Draw near to him and he entrusts you with discipleship. He entrusts you with eternity. And the Lord is there, though no longer being crucified. The Lord is reigning and ruling on high. And it's with that that we can worship him and acknowledge him. And so we pray to him with that end. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in gladness and in joy. We're so thankful that you were on that cross, even though you didn't deserve it. You you wanted to fulfill what you were calling yourself here to do. We're so grateful, God, that you died for our sins. We're so thankful for the examples of people like Mary, people like this disciple, Mary's friends who are there and draw near. God, we ask that you will give us under the power and inspiration of your spirit, just the natural desire to come to you and draw near to you. God, we thank you that you speak to us even through a text that was long ago written. You speak to us this morning and you tell us what it means to be loved by you. Your love endures forever. Pray this in the name of your son. Amen.